amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Muslims living in locations like Australia, Europe, and North America exist within a context dominated by white racial norms and are forced to grapple with those conventions on a daily basis. If they succeed in meeting the presiding criterion of secular liberalism, they can be dubbed a quote-unquote moderate Muslim by mainstream society. In Radical Skin, Moderate Masks, De-Radicalizing the Muslim and Racism in Post-Racial Societies, Yasser Morsi explores these contemporary social dynamics and considers the various ways Muslims don a mask in order to navigate the expectations of the dominant society. Here he offers three paradigms, what he calls the fabulous mask, the militant mask, and the triumphant mask, that represent changing tensions for the quote-unquote moderate Muslim. Morsi deconstructs the quote-unquote radical versus moderate binary through the forces of racialized structures that shape everyday life and the historical circumstances of Muslims in the quote-unquote West. This is achieved through an autoethnography that destabilizes traditional scholarship and enables the reader to come to a better understanding of the psychological and material effects of being a Muslim in the times of the war on terror and government-funded de-radicalization programs. In our conversation, we discuss the relationship between religion and race, the category of moderate Muslim, Franz Fanon, being a cultural translator, U.S. Muslim scholar Hamza Youssef, Australian media personality Waleed Ali, and comedian Nazim Hussein, readings of Edward Said's Orientalism, British commentator Majid Nawaz, philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, and confronting the theoretical and practical norms of academic scholarship. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Yasser Morsi about radical skin, moderate masks, de-radicalizing the Muslim, and racism in post-racial societies, published with Roman and Littlefield in 2017. Welcome, Yasser. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Good, thank you. Great. Uh, Ramadan, Kareem. Um, all good. I'm happy. And thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I appreciate you you making time uh, to talk about your, your wonderful book, Radical Skin, Moderate Masks. Um, we always start our conversations at New Books in Islamic Studies with a little bit of 
biographical info, which um, after reading your book, uh, which is partly an autoethnography, um, I learned a lot about you. <laughs> and uh, But I'm excited to learn a little bit about um, what brought you to kind of um, the, the academic study of Islam and Muslims in contemporary society. Um, were there moments uh, that kind of influenced the, your interests or the, the types of approaches that you take or mentors that kind of uh, helped you think about uh, your subject in new ways? Yeah, um, so the book was, I, I guess, um, a journey that came about through writing it. So it wasn't uh, something that I intended. The final product wasn't something that I initially intended with. But through the writing process or through the struggle of having to complete it, I discovered certain things that I wanted to say and so certain things that I thought um, I had what weren't wasn't allowed to say. And so through the actual journey of trying to write the book, complete the book, um, the book took shape. And I guess in many ways, um, the content was shaped by the form of writing as much as anything else. Um, and a series of ideas um, that came through me from you know, previous mentors, influences from you know, the post-colonial to the decolonial tradition, the likes of Fanon, Said, uh, and others. And it became really a, a reflection of an intellectual journey that I had taken from the very get-go when I first started studying philosophy and politics and trying to figure out or respond to the Muslim question. So uh, it's hard. To, it's hard to say in any one way uh, was it that, whether there was a intent or design because I don't think so. It was more um, a spontaneous act and uh, uh, that inevitably took shape from the moment I started tapping away. Uh, after nine months of silence, I, in six weeks, I, I got it all out and I said, "You know what? This is this is the book, and <laughs> wherever it may land, it may land." Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a really unique book, I think. Uh, I mean, especially in, uh, a kind of an academic context, um, you're going, you're kind of disrupting a lot of, uh, kind of norms in terms of how scholarship is written. Um, I'm wondering, uh, if you could give us a little more background on, um, kind of how things took shape because, um, in the book you talk about that you were, you were writing this, or, or plan to write this book, this project on um, countering violent extremism and government-funded uh, de-radicalization programs. Um, and uh, that kind of hit a wall um, in, in many ways uh, from your kind of own uh, personal stance on uh, you know, being an academic and being a Muslim at the same time, um, also in terms of like these norms that uh, you, you said for uh, part of your kind of early academic rearing, you were trying to emulate and copy. And uh, so uh, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about sure. this uh, in terms of the, this, this kind of development um, of, the, of the book. Sure, absolutely. Um, um, so I guess there's a, the, a broader picture and a deeper background, and then there's the actual um, invitation that came and my struggle with um, fulfilling what I initially uh, was asked to fulfill. 
So I'll start with the broader background. I, for whatever reason, very early on, I came to, to studies uh, late. And for whatever reason, I had developed this kind of inherent or restlessness within me to resist conventions and norms because I felt they were they were racialized in ways to channel a particular voice that um, had a kind of a Westernese ring to it, or for the lack of a better term, uh, the kind of normative voice. And I had within me an unknown urge to kind of bend the rules and break the conventions, and try to find a different way, not only to say what I wanted to say, but in the form that I wanted to say it. Um, I guess uh, coming from an Islamic tradition or, uh, where the oral um, tradition and storytelling um, was a big part of me growing up and connecting to my Islam, I, you know, there was there was part of me that I wanted to read the social sciences that I grew up in academia with, but also wanting to tamper with the way that we had um, been asked to be trained. Now, I that lay dormant in me for a while. And, um, you know, in order to be able to get a PhD and pass my um, essays, I had to write along conventional lines. And um, that that's what I got trained in. So uh, when it came to finally writing my book, I was fully expecting to continue that trend. But again, that restlessness was there. And that leads me to the actual details of the book. So I was invited by a couple of colleagues, Alana Linton and Gavin Tilly, to write for um, you know, a series um, around immigration struggles and so forth, and particularly looking at CVE, counterviolent extremism, and how it was... Uh, a cover for racialized forms from the state to intervene into the Muslim community with, you know, it's not the first time that the state has used um, certain policing legislation to try to socially engineer a community's political response to both crises and otherwise. So I was looking at the literature of CVE and while reading and while doing the research, I continually began to try to write in response to how it's racialized, how it's, used and instrumentalized, how it's weaponized to target the Muslim community and so forth. And, you know, the argument was there. It was always there. But I I then began to speak in a somewhat neutral uh, position about this. And I could feel inside of me um, this anger and rage about uh, the long history of violence towards minorities in uh, Western states and so forth. And I was trying to temper this voice, uh, to give it um, kind of mild-mannered, neutral um, disposition in order to make sense of the uh, racial undertones, and not just undertones, in some cases quite blunt racial um, pr- projects that were um, found within the broader CVE narrative. And I, I just couldn't do it. I, you know, I every time I wrote a sentence where I, I spoke in, let's say, for the lack of a better term, this this neutral academic voice about what was going on, uh, the type of social science that I had learned, I felt something was fundamentally missing. And I, when I read it back, I didn't feel like it was me. It felt like it didn't feel like it captured what it meant to live as a Muslim man of say late, say military age under the crosshairs before the crosshairs of the war on terror. I mean, Islamophobia has multiple um, battle sites and multiple crosshairs and various different sites. And the war on terror often targets, um, you know, young 
Muslim radical, politically radical men who are dissident in their views of um, the state. And I, 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 don't, I felt like I had to t- temper that, censor that, uh, shape my voice in a particular way where effectively, um, to make it blunt, I had to perform a form of whiteness that uh, erased a lot of what was going on uh, both in my head and you know metaphorically in my stomach and it didn't it didn't sit well with me it didn't it didn't let me uh, complete my sentence that restlessness kept making me um, delete everything I wrote so uh, that's the then I get to the stage where I've got nothing but a blank page <laughs> deadline is passed and my editors are telling me when would you expect your first draft i'm trying to get them to give me four or six more weeks just you know to find a way to complete this book and um yeah then i wrote bismillah uh on the page and i just said what would it sound like if i didn't censor myself and yeah and then i uh what i couldn't write in nine months i wrote in six weeks well, I'm I'm glad you went through that struggle uh, for for the end product. <laughs> um, so the the title um, kind of uh, mirrors or kind of uh, pays homage to uh, Franz Fanon's Black Skin White Masks, um, and you talk about this book, uh, you know, throughout yours as well. Um, and you you mention uh, early on that um, you say your subjective subjectivity collapsed when you when you first read this book. Um, so I'm I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about um, how Fanon's work is important for you, um, and then uh, what are the signifiers in your title uh, this this radical and moderate binary? Uh, what do they mean in your project? Sure. Yeah, uh, reading Fanon changed everything for me politically. Um, I was also it's one of those books that I had to put down while reading it and pace up and down corridors to fully grasp both what was what was being said, but also um, perhaps more powerfully everything that was missing in my formal training up to that point. It's like reading Fanon changed everything, um, and I it was it, it was also the way it was written. And the, the the ability for me to kind of um, connect with, uh, although albeit I have a different body and I am in a different period of the colonial history and different locality, and have different struggles um, and perhaps far less of a struggle than Fanon did, I, I still could connect to some fundamental principles that came out of that book, especially. The kind of dialectic between the body that I possess and the war on terror, and standing before the white gaze, and what 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 it interpolates from me, what it demands from me, the kind of performance that I'm asked to perform. Um, and so, when I read Fanon, um, especially Black Skin White Masks, I uh, particularly uh, something shifted something clicked something changed but you know what's interesting about when i say something shifts something it's almost like i recalled something i remembered something that i had buried you know it, it was a kind of old truth that somehow i had observed um without having the vocabulary or the language to fully pick on and here's Fanon putting words to that experience and you know it, it felt like he was um helping me remember what i had one way or another forgotten um 
And that's what was uh, particularly powerful about it. And that's independent from all the intellectual insights that he gives about the power relations and the dynamic of the racialized body. And for him, you know, what that white gaze demands from a black man and the various different inter-existent relationships he has with other subjects in this respect. And then there's a psychodynamic element to it, which has always fascinated me because beyond the kind of concrete realities of the way Islamophobia uh, performs its violence that always leaves a lasting stain on one's psyche. You know, and, uh, fighting Islamophobia your whole life wears you down, as fighting racism does. And so the, all of that package together um, really helped, um, uh, I guess, inspire me to be a little bit more honest. So when, when it came to writing my book and initially, you know, talking about CVE and so forth, you know, I, I began to recognize that I'm performing a particular mask uh, when I'm trying to hide behind this academic persona. And when I eventually wrote my book in that kind of passionate rush of six weeks, letting it all out, you know, I, uh, the bravery that Fanon um, gave me allowed me to, to do so. And so there's that um, influence. And then there is, of course, the intellectual structuring of the book, which again, is, uh, you know, pay homage to Fanon. He helped me think about masks. He helped me think about what that may mean. And, of course, the book also engages with Edward Said, who was another influence, but I also had, like, some resentment to Said. Uh, uh, I was inspired by Said. I went through various different stages of three or major readings of Edward Said, and uh, Fanon helped me navigate those readings and, make me make sense of why at one stage I fell in love with Said, another stage I was angry with him, the third stage I made up with him, all in my head, mind you, and Edward Said has no idea who I am, you know, um, may rest in peace. Like, so, um, yeah, uh, so that, that's, that's, um, that was an important influence. And then the other part of it was, the, I guess, um, writing an autoethnography. And there's, there's elements of that in Fanon, and that is placing oneself at the site of their analysis, um, uh, self-exploring um, what part of me is uh, social and what part of me is formed by the social. And in this particular sense, how much of me has been shaped by the war on terror? And that, that haunted me. I mean, do I know myself politically outside of the context of um, September 11? I mean, how much of did this event trigger uh, a series of consequences socially and politically that led me uh, to take the path that I did. I wasn't really political prior to the second plane um, hitting the North Tower, I think it was. I That moment did something, and I've never really been able to turn back to the Yasser that um, existed before that moment. So uh, the book explores three masks, and so maybe we can look at that a little bit later, but that's the influence of Fanon. It only made sense uh, to write uh, a title like that because of what Fanon had uh, done to both my academic and personal view of things. Now, um, so you you replace um, these uh, Fanon terms uh, for radical and moderate, and this kind of binary plays a really you know important uh, kind of role in your book. Um, especially this idea of moderate, which is what the, these kind of uh, three masks that, um, mm. uh, you know, we can discuss in detail further. Um, but what, so where, where does this, what is this binary, uh, how, how does it operate in your, in your kind of analysis? 
Yes, yeah, so I was uh, just like I was exploring the kind of um, pressure to be a particular type of academic writer when I first started this book. That was a, in a broader political context. There's been a continual pressure, as I read it, uh, for um, Muslims to perform a particular type of being Muslim that eases the, the anxieties, the white anxieties that come out of the war and terror. And so often that there is a result that we our starting position is uh, as Muslims that we have some type of uh, uh, relationship, cultural, political, or otherwise. And this is a result of the war on terrorist discourse with terrorism or violence or an illiberality that relates to our backwardness and the way we treat um, women or the way we treat um, uh minorities, um, sexual minorities, and so forth. There, you know, for the lack of a better term, there's a, a, a signature stereotype of the Muslim being uh, pre-modern and outside of the sensibilities of modernity. And in, in the war on terrorist uh, scope, that means where fundamentally we deal with pol- politics through violence. And in that sense, that the radical element was also a result of the CVE narrative that is attempting to de-radicalize us, right? attempting to remove that malignant pre-modern part of us while maintaining a form of Islam that was hollowed out of any, let's say, oppositional political energy towards the West. So the moderate masks were three ways that uh, the war on terror and society in general, not just CVE narrative, uh, CVE became for me a manifestation of this kind of post-racial era where we want to keep uh, the idea that we respect and love and tolerate everyone, we want to keep the sense that you can you're you're free to be Muslim, but we want to hollow out your Muslimness from anything that is deemed um, oppositional, malignant, dangerous towards the West, and that means for us as Muslims who have to deal with the both the everyday and social and political pressures, uh, we have to self self censor. Uh, eradicate that part of us that triggers an imagination of our radicalness. Doesn't mean we're radicals, doesn't mean anything. I mean, I don't uh, subscribe to any support for terrorism or whatnot, but I also resent the fact that if I'm a political dissident to the West, that somehow I have to double up the work of, you know, as I said, easing the anxieties that my political dissent is born from some irrational pre modern violence. It's a result of analysis and reading of history. It's a result of an ethics that I believe uh, in the freedom of all for all and the equality and justice for all, right? But that wasn't afforded to me if I'm at the center of the way democracy is weaponized or liberalism has a history tied to slavery and racism. So the, to answer your question the shortest possible way, even though I've taken a longer way, um, the starting point here is that we have this radicalness and that radicalness is grounded in a problematic Islam and then there's a social as well as a political and personal pressure for us to wear, to perform a moderate type of Islam in order um, to ease the anxieties that we find in the war on terror, even if it comes at the detriment of us, uh, our political resistance towards the West. So the book explored, in a sense, three ways that commonly happens. And in that way, um, it's exploring uh, the way racism kind of puts pressure on us to reinvent who we are, not for the political survival of who we are, but for white society to feel comfortable with having us side by side with them. 
Now, um, uh, the, the category of race becomes a kind of central component in uh, that kind of inflects your lens through which you kind of examine all of these issues, uh, which I think is one of the really important contributions that you, you, you make that uh, a lot of people might not be thinking about. Um, and you, you kind of uh, use these terms, uh, the Apollonian and the, the Dionysian, as uh, representative of forces uh, of this kind of the, the racialized structures of the world, uh, if, if I'm reading yeah. you correctly. Um, so can, can you tell us um, uh, what, what are the ways that you use these terms? What do they, they sure. mean for you? Um, how, how do things like um, critical race theory figure into your approaches uh, to thinking about Muslims in uh, contemporary societies? Um, and, uh, and, and, and how does this operate in places like Australia or North America or Europe? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so <laughs> I get to a place in my book where I realize um, I'm resisting against uh, conventions of social science in one way, and that, or I will to resist, right? But then at the same time, I've only ever been trained in that science. So what I, this is the reason why I adopted an autoethnography because I was interested in tracing, the, like say, the contradictions in me, right? And one of the contradictions in me is that I want to resist the West but somehow want to belong to it and I've only ever trained in its Western vocabulary in order to make sense of the limitations of, um, of that vocabulary or the epistemic racism that underpins uh, the way we speak about Muslims and Islam in the CVE narrative. So here I had a choice, and that choice was do I try to, in a sense, feign a Muslim authenticity that purely relies on Islamic sources? And that for me would be a dishonest, dishonest act. I have a foundational commitment to Islam, but because of the colonial history that I find myself, because of the family history that I find myself, I'm thrown into the West, and all I have is its language to make sense of that thrownness. And so I, I returning to the Nietzschean dichotomy of the Apollonian and the Dionysian, that was one of the first things that I read when I was studying undergrad in philosophy, the birth of tragedy. And I took from that two metaphors, the Dionysian and Apollonian, to continually make sense of um, my own condition. This was well before I was afforded the opportunity to read Fanon or critical race theory. I went in, did a BA in philosophy and politics, and basically it's a an old but common story. I just spent the next three years reading white male philosophers of, <laughs> um, you know, of old and present age. And, you know, I had to make sense of this struggle. And uh, uh, Nietzsche gave me that because the synthesis that he talks about between Apollon and Dionysian became very early on for me a way to describe, uh, let's say, the Western Enlightenment liberal secular tradition as inability to synthesize its abstract ideals of freedom, equality, tolerance, with the Dionysian reality of uh, globalization or the Dionysian reality of dealing with difference. And so the Apollonian and Dionysian become two other metaphors for the radical and moderate. Um, the Dionysian for me is, um, just to give a definition of how I read it, and uh, bastardized Nietzsche in a sense, because at one point I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to take what I, and this is <laughs> the freedom of autoethnography, I'm just going to take what I take out of it. I'm going to trace how I used it rather than what it is. And so that's what I was doing. I, I was trying not to lie about how I got to where I got to. And so Dionysian for me became a symptom of, you know, this kind of 
the reality of a world that's built on colonial history, the concrete realities that racism built, the zone of non-being, you know, the, the crushingness of, um, of living in developed countries or coming from a, the, um, the global south where, you know, everything is, as, has a consequence as a result of what colonialism built. It's, there's a kind of drunkenness to, to it. Uh, there's a kind of uh, disorder to it, but there's kind of real to it. Right, and then that's contrasted with uh, Apollonian, which is an abstract set of fantastic ideals, a symmetry about uh, liberalism. And reading Ashish Nandi, I realized um, uh, that when he was speaking about kind of two sides of colonialism, at the same time, the European Enlightenment project spoke about civilizing people, about introducing the best of ideals of science and freedom and so forth. What through the machinations of displacing people, of uprooting society, of replacing, you know, um, their old form of agriculture and economy to replace it with a new form that uh, brought all the wealth to the global north. So there was, there was two aspects of it, the kind of hard concrete reality of um, uh, colonialism and the wonderful ideals that, um, <laughs> you know, the enlightened Europeans told themselves about their project. And then for me, that became uh, related to the post-racial. We maintain a language of equality, of freedom, of tolerance, of respect, of all people being equal, of humanism. All the while, the concrete thing, the material thing that colonialism built continues to um, you know, run along neoliberal capitalist lines today. Um, displacement still occurs, exploitation still occurs. We have this wonderful language, and that can that for me became a broader metaphor for the radical moderate dichotomy. You know, um, for me, violence is born out of not solely. Let me be clear: I hate to be reductionist, but a major part of violence is born out of the the, the Dionysian world that was built. And um, I'm not quite sure just applying Apollonian ideals such as "let us all be equal" and so forth can correct that. There needs to be a synthesis and there needs to be an addressing of that Dionysian drunkenness that's born out of that. And so I use these to try to explain that maybe terrorism has more of a Dionysian element to it and uh, the consequences of all of that is one thing that um, CVE rarely tries to address, right? So uh, to give you a concrete example of what I'm trying to say is a lot of CV will spend a lot of time on what I call cultural talk. What do Muslims youth believe? How do they see the West? How do they interpret um, democracy? What do they think about religious minorities? Right? And that became a kind of de-radicalization program. And all the while, it fails to address what comes out of consecutive wars, displacement, the Palestinian question. Um, and I'm just focusing here on the Middle East, where if you broaden the Muslim world, we can go from China to Burma to there is constantly East Africa. There's constant violence that is occurring in this world that can be traced to the conditions or at least the parameters. And again, I'm not making a causal argument here. I'm not saying colonialism caused terrorism, but I am saying there's a correlation between the world it built and the conditions it built and the violence that comes out of those conditions. And CVE doesn't address any of that. CVE is more interested in these abstractions about how you feel and what you think and who you're hanging out with. And I felt that was a, a reflection of the pressure for us to integrate into a Western myth, Western Apollonian myth, 
while neglecting the Dionysian realities of the world that many of us come from. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Now, <clears throat> uh, I, I really, I think all these kind of uh, ways of theorizing this, uh, I think you're really successful in the book. And I think, uh, I, I hope other people will read this because I think it's really a helpful way of kind of um, framing either specific case studies as the way you kind of um, do in some of the parts of the the book here later on, um, or even larger projects. Um, but so you, you offer these three kind of paradigms, uh, these three masks, uh, the fabulous mask, the militant mask and the triumphant mask. Um, and you, you, you talk about how these represent these kind of changing tensions in your own identity. Uh, but then you also kind of tie it to, uh, specific, uh, subjects or even, uh, Kind of material objects like uh, uh, museum exhibits or things like this um, to kind of talk about how this exemplifies some of your own kind of anxiety, uh, which I think the the auto uh, ethnography does a really great job of uh, communicating for the reader. Um, but the, this first one, the fabulous mask, um, you talk about this is uh, kind of being a cultural translator in a way. Mm. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could uh, explain what you mean uh, by this mask um, and how might we witness this uh, either in something like uh, a museum exhibit or um, through uh, kind of individuals, personalities, personas, these kind of things. Yeah, so I think I got um, off memory, um, again, because it was all ethnography and I was um, tracing uh, how certain ideas left an impression on me. I got this from Joseph Conrad, these three movements in colonialism. They, they reflect three movements in colonialism. First is the, the adventurous discovery co colonizer who gets to the um, to the, the colonial land of the East, uh, the mystical, exotic place, and it's fabulous, right? Um, you know, and then this fund then leads to this kind of military intervention before the triumph that occurs through the domination. Three kind of stages of Western fantasies of its relationship with uh, places that it's colonized or tried to dominate. And so the first one was uh, that kind of exoticness. And I, I, you're absolutely right. I'm tracing three suppositions that I adopted in my struggle uh, to find my place as a Muslim talking back. So I was, I wanted to be really honest about that because uh, as a disclaimer very quickly before I get into this definition of the fabulous, I became to recognize the harm of me performing authentic Muslim. Now, what I mean by that is like, uh, 
there was a there was a pressure for me to act in a particular way um and this kind of ties into the fabulous mask where i'm supposed to translate um some you know somebody would ask me a question about islam and i'm i feel a pressure to translate it in a beautiful exotic way and from a very early age mind you you know even before the war on terror to speak to uh fellow primary school kids about how brilliant the pyramids are when i climb to the top of it or you know like the kind of do i own a camel as a pet right there's always this kind of feed in the western gazes exotic it's need to hear about the exoticness of where i'm from um so there was, there was this pressure to be fabulous in a sense to fulfill that and to translate you know um uh the the kind of thirsty hungry western appetite to ex- to explain who i am and this fabulous moderate is the moderate that goes out and says things you know like oh the the shorter is a grounded for democracy that like you know we invented coffee we introduced the chess to the chess to the western world where you know algebra comes from muslims we we instigated the enlightenment we're as carriers of greek and aristotelian philosophy you know we're always looking to integrate by speaking as if we're some type of postal worker that delivers the west to itself before the west realized itself and that pressure to perform that role or in a sense perform a sense uh we are fabulous, um, I think it's very detrimental. Uh, you know, at one level, it, it denies our humanness, it denies our weakness, it denies our ability to be the full kaleidoscope of um, human experiences, um, including being in a struggle in, with our own excesses, our own violences, our own societies and so forth. And uh, it's inevitably a mask that will slip off. But there is a pressure to do it. And the case study I think I used was um, the idea of a translator. And that is whenever I'm asked a question or wherever, I think I I spoke about Walid Ali, a commentator here, a wonderfully intelligent uh, uh, man who's principled and wants to speak back. But at the same time, I have big, big problems with his politics around race. Um, And I felt that he he was continually playing this translator role. And the final thing I want to say about this is, uh, is when you are playing this translator role, you kind of have to speak as if you're an insider, that you know something. Like just because you're Muslim, does not may- mean that you're an expert on the historical, political, social, aesthetic, ethical uh, histories of a massive world, right? Especially if you have to answer questions about what causes violence. And it really became an eye-opener for me to see how many Muslims adopted this role as translator, that you know, your, your day job could be you're a teacher, which is a fantastic job. I'm not um, disrespecting that position. But then you put before a camera and they're asking you, give us insight into the, to Islam and what the community thinks because a terrorist attack has just occurred. And this teacher is now speaking as if they're... Um, a veteran anthropologist and a lifelong sociologist about all that, all that's Islamic, and on top of all that, with the aesthetic pressure of sounding fabulous. Hmm. Um, you you do kind of work through this, <clears throat> uh, through this this uh, this person Walid Ali, um, but you also kind of um, set up this foil uh, with uh, an, another. Uh, media personality this comedian nazim hussein um and for for a lot of listeners they might not know who these these folks are um mm-hmm. so could, could you just briefly kind of tell us a little bit about 
why you kind of pair these two two folks together, who they are, and, and why they uh, they kind of both operate in uh, through this fabulous mask, but in different ways. Sure. So my context was principally Australian. So um, they're fairly prominent, probably the two. I don't know. I haven't really. To the two most prominent Muslim men in the Australian media, and is he being a comedian? Will he be in a Golden Logie winner, which is our kind of I don't know Grammy or Oscar or something in Australia? Um, so they're, they're like if you ask the broader mainstream society in Australia, name two prominent Muslims, um, uh, Walid and Nazim would be up there, uh, you know, um, definitely, and they haven't really hid that they're Muslim. So that was also important. There's, there's plenty of um, um, Muslims in positions of authority in government and media. And, you know, uh, it's not really at the forefront of their identity, which is, this is not a judgment, but Walid and Nizim were well known for being Muslim. So uh, in Australia, they initially um, created this show called Salam Cafe, which was one of the earliest interventions uh, well, the earliest attempts by the Muslim community to speak back to the pressure that came out of the war on terror in the early days of the war on terror, right? So, and their whole job there was to play translator. And uh, that was one of, uh, because it's an order ethnography, that was, I used them principally because um, I met them, know them slightly. I mean, you know, and um, I, they become a metaphor for me, a reference, an example that my head would continually return to. I would watch the skits that Nazim would make, the interviews that Walid would do, and the commentary of the op-eds that he would write. And I always felt, I mean, I mean, me and with my friends at the time, you know, Walid would become a shorthand of speaking about what I didn't use the words at the time, speaking about that fabulous um, uh, moderate, right? Uh, that who's, you know, almost too good to be true, right? And uh, I don't believe that was a proper reflection of the kind of pain, struggle, anger, hurt, disjointedness, dynisianness of the Muslim voice and the kind of cleanliness and well-ordered and the humor that Nazim provided, all of it uh, bothered me. But also with Nazim, it wasn't, wasn't just that. He had a particular character called, I think it was Uncle Sam, and he put on this beard and wore thongs, uh, which is slippers and now with socks and performed this old uncle figure, put on an accent. And this became a, a an act of delight for mainstream society because we have Nazim, who's a sharp-witted, well-spoken, I think he was studying law, um, young, well-integrated Muslim, mocking this uncle, old-aged, uh, kind of outdated Muslim figure um, who had peculiar... Um, takes on things and so forth. And that ability for him to slip into Uncle Sam, make everybody laugh at this figure and slip out of it, uh, worked for reverse for me. And that is to say he he's trying to tell everybody, this is who, who you think we are, but I'm Nazim. And Nazim became the moderate, the fabulous moderate, right? And I didn't, I never enjoyed that about them. I never enjoyed the fact that they had to sacrifice, uh, let's say, a different type of Muslim in order for them to gain favor from where I'd never thought that as a proper project, a proper anti-racist project. Basically it's a game of tag here. Society's telling you Muslims are backwards and you're kind of saying, well, not all of us. Right. And you're pointing at some other Muslim and they, the, the constructed figure of uncle Sam here was an example of that. And 
um, if you want to, if you want to be a, a moderate or a fabulous Muslim, go ahead. Like, right? That's not my <laughs> job to be whoever you want to be. It's the sacrifice that I had a problem with. It's the political expediency of those Muslims who aren't well integrated, those Muslims who are radical, those Muslims who do have political dissent, those Muslims who don't want to tell the world that, oh, look, I support this football team, I have a barbecue on the weekend, I'm just as Aussie as you are. Those who, who are reluctant to say they're Australian or British, right? Um, they're, they're, they're important too, and I didn't like the sacrifice. So that, that, was, that was a reason why I chose those two, uh, principally because of the figure of Uncle Sam, but also because they were... Um, I guess, archimedial points and prominent figures in my own understanding of my politics. Yeah. Um, now, the, the second mask you talk about is the militant mask, um, which uh, people hearing that might assume that that's one thing. Um, so oh. perhaps you could kind of articulate what you mean by the militant mask. Um, and then you look at it, um, you know, through uh, some kind of personal anecdotes, but then you also think about... Um, uh, Hamza Youssef, um, mm. who at least people in North America will probably know better, um, but perhaps you could tell, tell us a little bit about uh, who he is and then how you sure. saw him embodying this militant mask. Yeah, absolutely. So with the first two masks, um, Fabulous and Militant, um, uh, both uh, Walid Ali and Nazim with, you know, and Sheikh Hamza Youssef, um, I had a little bit of um, personal um, heartbreak around it. You know, I wanted to love them, right? I wanted to be on their side and I felt they let me down. Well, you know, uh, very different from the third mask that I'm sure we'll get to. So Sheikh Hamza Yusuf was one of those early uh, examples in my life where I felt like uh, he was such a well-articulated and brilliant uh, mind that could merge the philosophies of the West with, um, you know, a, a, a well-grounded and um, uh, in the Islamic tradition where and I, I wanted to basically sit at his feet and learn everything. But then as time went through and uh, his political responses became quite problematic and troubling for me and I was struggling with it. And so the militant mask here represents that second stage of colonialism where you kind of have to you know, get rid of these radical demons from you. Like, um, and so the reason why it's militant is that Hamza used to spend a lot of time, I think, trying to distance Islam or the, or the pure Islam, the right Islam, the correct Islam from the kind of um, it, the terrorists or the, uh, the other Muslims or the, you know, the Muslims who have got it wrong. And in every act of colonialism that I could have studied or seen, there, you know, it's not as simple as you know, the Europeans come in and they fight the locals. You know, the Europeans could not have fought and won if they didn't turn the locals on each other. And that's the militant mask where you're... Uh, you're fighting a military campaign, if you will, on the behalf of Europe or the behalf of the West or behalf of the colonial power. Um, and that stage, there's a compel, compulsion from all of us, not only to show that we're fabulous at one level, but also showing that we're committed to the political project of the West, which means we're committed to fighting our own. You know, this used to manifest itself very early on when we were uh, kind of compelled to be native informants compelled to help uh, policing agencies and all others find the terrorists within our community, to find the radicals within our community. And then we, we kind of turned upon each one another. And we're here, we're, we're for, that militant mask is not our mask. You know, it's very easy to think that the militant is the, 
you know, th- that Muslim who, who wants to go off and fight ISIS. But, you know, the first employment of us in this war was to fight against, you know, our own who were deemed radical. You know, that was the first militant. You know, that was the, the first compulsion. Like we have those who are sympathetic to the Taliban or whatnot, you know, and we are now armed with both the, the law and society's approval to go fight our own. And Sheikh Hamza Yusuf became, especially when he began to uh, reformulate the problem of terrorism as one of terrorist lacking chivalry or proper understanding of Islam and so forth. And I found that really, really troubling. I, I, you know, like, okay, maybe that's an aspect of it, but I felt like it was a kind of fundamental uh, attribution error, which meant is, yeah, maybe they have all these things, but I, surely you cannot reduce terror and violence to somebody lacking proper Islam. Um, if that were the case, then we've accepted the West's fight. And the West's fight is that there's something wrong with their Islam. And that's a fantastic way to erase all else. Yeah. Um, and then there's a moment where we begins to onto- kind of ontologize the colonial condition as a test from God. You know, that we should uh, take this almost, I mean, I could be entirely wrong here, but one of the messages was like to accept, you know, in a way, uh, the kind of current political conditions that we have uh, and not fight back in a way that inevitably uh, demeans us. Now, I don't, I'm not here to to judge the religious uh, aspect of that. But I am here to perhaps commentate on the convenience of this message uh, to the West and how it reflects a particular mask that almost all of us um, have to sometimes wear. And that's my point, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf enabled uh, through his narrative. And I think in subsequent years, uh, in regards to his politics around racism and you know his scapegoating of postmodern this or that and whatnot, I, I, I come to realize, you know, there's a kind of conservative streak here that has uh, borrowed a lot from an American political culture where religion is simply about being good citizens. And I think that in, enables a particular view of how we respond to uh, the war and terror that disarms us. And although I will never, ever say that going off and fighting is... I can't give that fatwa. That's not my role. But what I can say is that, um, you know, blaming things on a lack of proper Islam only ever enables the Islamophobic narrative because that Islamophobic narrative centers Islam at the heart of why violence occurs. And I think that should be dismantled. Um, Now, the last mask you uh, introduce um, is this triumphant mask. Um, and you use uh, this figure, Majid Nawaz, to kind of talk about how this uh, operates. Um, so what, what exactly uh, is being kind of uh, put forth through this, this, uh, this final mask? At this stage, it's just total identification with everything the West stands for. There is no longer resistance. Now your job is to simply promote uh, democracy, liberalism, secularism, without ever critiquing or questioning their racial origins or how they've been used to weaponize and scandalize uh, others and minorities within the West, right? So now you're an advocate for the kind of the purest Apollonian myths of the West. Uh, the blame is completely put 
back onto the other minorities for not integrating and celebrating for holding on to things like Sharia and so forth. And effectively, although you're, and I'm not here questioning um, Majid's faith, or, but you are put forward as that Muslim who um, is a Muslim who sees the truth of the West and has no apologies um, in advocating and promoting um the West as uh, even a proper version of Islam. So, you know, like uh, uh, much later on, I think this character, what's his name? Imam um, Tawhidi comes and he's an even greater articulation of this where, you know, <laughs> it's almost like the worst Islamophobe who is a Muslim with a turban who says everything that Islamophobia in the, the CVE narrative wants to say behind, behind a Muslim uh, voice, right? And Majid Nawaz became an example of that. And he tells this journey from Hezbo Tahrir, how he, he kind of de-radicalized himself and eventually sees the light of democracy and so forth. And now is an employed, um, socially employed, politically employed, and maybe even financially employed. I don't know. don't wish to make those allegations. But um, fighter on the behalf of all that is uh, the ideals of the West and the politics of the West. Now, to be clear here, I, I'm not, not interested in saying that anything that comes from the West is by virtue of it coming from the West erroneous or problematic or that democracy in and of itself is a problem or that liberalism has no value. That's never been my point. My point is, however, to give a closer reading of these things and to not erase from um, the, the history that helped these things be triumphant. Right, and so we. I don't want to erase the fact that secularism and democracy have been used as great weapons by oppressive regimes in the Muslim world, or the fact that liberalism has been racialized to uh, speak about progressive minds versus backward religious minds. This this has to be brought into conversation. We can't just take for granted that just because you say things like, you know, all all people are equal, that that matters. That's a great Apollonian truth. But in reality, it's very rarely exercised. And so the triumphant mask here is a mask of um, celebrating the West without critiquing it. It's accepting its victory, accepting its, uh, it as being the standard upon which all other human political um, design must uh, fall under. And it's the completion of the colonial project. You know, First we discover its exotic- exoticness, then we fight to remove its malignant militants through the militant mask. And then finally, we are victorious by saying that the only solution to all things is for us to adopt the most cherished of Western ideals. Um, now, you you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, um, and those that that read the book will will know this pretty quickly that um, Saeed's Orientalism uh, was very influential in your thinking, and um, through throughout the book, you kind of uh, you reflect back on these kind of moments or readings of uh, Saeed's work, um, which I, I, th- I thought was great. It, it really felt like a kind of conversation reading through the book. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about yeah. your readings of Orientalism. How, how does Saeed's work uh, factor into your thinking? And then how did you reflect on the, the work in these three, in relation to these three masks? Yeah. So um, the three masks are also masks that I have worn, and that's something that I wanted to stress. You know, like I don't want to make it sound like these three uh, examples that I used. I used them because, for a few reasons, they are of similar, uh, you know, 
positionality. You know, Western Muslim men, um, in two cases, I think, um, you know, raced uh, Muslim men, um, uh, Pakistani and Egyptian. And, um, so, but there are positionalities, and I've adopted these positionalities. And Edward Said does a couple of things here for me. Um, one, he helps me through various readings I had of Said. So let's say I read Orientalism three times. I think I've read it backward and forward much more. But let's say I had three dominant readings of Edward Said. And these three dominant readings actually in many ways reflected the masks that I wore, um, but also reflected the kind of political stages in my development to lead me up to where I was when I wrote the book. And so the first reading of Said uh, that I read was, I think, the crudest and most simplest one that um, often is you know, heard about. And that is Said's making the point that Muslims are misrepresented. or not, not, He doesn't specifically speak about Muslims. He speaks about the Oriental. And, of course, a big part of that is the, the Islamic world. But, you know, we're exotic, violent, we're stereotypically other, and our definition is defined by um, us not being the West and we lack what the West has and so forth. And that was my first reading. And from the moment I read that book, I could see it everywhere. You know, you, you grew up watching Aladdin, you knew it was kind of something wrong, but you're kind of glad that there's something <laughs> about your world being rep- represented. And then you take a closer look and you're like, why is there uh, a, a monkey called Abu and a tiger called Raj? Like, what's going on? And so there's this this misrepresentation and that was the easy part, and that that's related to uh, a compulsion to translate, right? Related to me to correct these stereotypes, to go out there and speak about the complexity of the Muslim world, and to rubbish uh, the simplicity of these stereotypes. And you're stuck in the, that stage, and many people remain in that stage. And the Islamic Museum that I spoke about visiting, I think, is always in that stage. Their entire job is to tell visitors that. Hey, look how fabulous we are! Look how we're not the stereotype, etc., etc., etc. Now, the second reading of Said was a little bit more difficult for me, and I began to fall out of love with Said because I felt like he was still relying, and you know, on um, how do I say it? Um, Said nevertheless ends up saying things like there is no authentic or singular Islam, right? And that may well be true, but I have problems with that because I do believe there's an ontological claim made by Islam that creates the plurality of its differences and its contest. I could not deny uh, a singular Islam, and I don't believe that it's uh, oppositional to the idea that uh, Islam carries plurality with it. Um, I don't believe that it has to be one or the other. You, you don't have to believe that there is a sole Islam and that uh, no plurality exists within the Islamicate world. The plurality exists for me because there's a claim to what that singularity means. And so the Said then, as many critics have highlighted, relies on this kind of secular subject, right? And that's when we get to the triumphant master. His critic, right, uh, was a secular critic, a secular humanist. And, you know, I won't be the first to have said this, um, but, um, you know, he takes an entire journey to dismantle how the West in part was you know, created and developed through its opposition to the Muslim world, only for him to conclude by some of the most idealized Apollonian values of the Western world, including its humanism and its secularism. And I had a problem with that. This is when I fell out of love with Said. I'm like, okay, you do a great job in showing us that the problem 
of stereotyping and representations tied to power and tied to um, the idea of a kind of institution that uh, is not politically neutral and its science has to be questioned, and that institution being academia or oriental studies, only for, for you to ask me to be a critic in the greatest of secular uh, humanist traditions. Uh, so in between, somewhere there, uh, there was an over-identification. This is the militant mask for me, an over-identification with a pure, authentic Islam. And that was probably the most problematic part of my stage of my life, my, when I tried too hard to play authentic. And of course, that authenticity was just this oriental stereotype, right? Uh, it was just, I am I am this true Muslim. And, but I, I wasn't grounded properly in Islamic traditions. I wasn't taught properly. I wasn't immersed in its culture. I was just performing authenticity. And so those three readings of Said uh, mirrored for me the kind of fabulous, um, um, militant, and eventually triumphant. But at the end, I realized that what Said did, and I maybe misread him, uh, was in re- taking my journey through re- the various different readings of Said, he, he helped develop various questions. And in many ways, I'm, he, what he was asking for, this kind of exilic critic and the, the critic in exile who never stays in one spot, always grows, refuses to stay at one station, um, I, it kind of accidentally mirrored the way I read him over three different stages. You know, I was never satisfied to stay at one stage of Orientalism. And in that sense, I'm always grateful. And you don't have to agree, but I'm, I'm grateful for the journey that he took me on, very, very important text. And I learned to appreciate his humility and humbleness and rootedness and his wonderful, grateful thinking without necessarily uh, uh, buying the idea that the best of critics is grounded in their humanism. Um, that said, I don't have a particular problem with it, but reading back to it, uh, uh, Said's book was super influential because I could tra- literally trace um, – you know, you, you sometimes you watch a movie and you remember when you first watched it, the kind of mood you were in, um, or you watch a movie way back in, when you watched it as a kid and it's not as funny as you thought. Right? I can I can remember three different stages of my mood or my political state in reading Edward Said and tracing those in an autoethnography um, helped me recognize both my growth, but also how I was compelled to wear different masks at different stages. Yeah, it's a great. It would be a great book to read along uh, Orientalism. I think um, for courses and things like that, um, especially because of the the, the tone of uh, Said's work, which is I think tricky for a lot of students today. But um, whereas yours is almost the uh, the, the kind of uh, exact opposite in terms of how uh, easy it is to kind of engage and get get wrapped up into your your narrative the way you've written it. So. Um, the book also, it does a really great job of kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't feel static in the way a lot of books do. Um, so I, I, if there's anything else you want to say about the book, I mean, there's tons of details and short little snippets that, that we didn't cover. Um, but, uh, so, so feel free to say anything else that you, you feel like you didn't get to talk about. Um, but I was wondering about these kind of, um, like continuing thinking about this, this process and these ongoing shifts, um, and if you have reflections uh, in your thinking since the book has been published, have you have you developed your your thoughts on these ideas of masking? Is there is there a fourth mask, or uh, even are, are there other reactions that you've had 
uh, to the book that have made you kind of think about things in, in, in new ways, yeah. perhaps? Um, so when I finished the book, I thought it was an absolute disaster. Let me be clear about that. And it was, just, <laughs> it was six weeks in, and I, I I had to submit it. And you know, I got my family, my wife, my kids, just to force me to press enter. And I remember my uh, young daughter was very very keen to press the enter button. Um, <laughs> just just to press the button. And so uh, as soon as I sent it, I was like, "That's it, done. No no one's gonna they're gonna first of all, the editors aren't going to." accept this and yeah i'm 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 gonna look for a new job tomorrow so uh, then i remember sitting down and i tried to put it out of my head and i was like and i didn't really hear back and i was upset because what happened is that i i was late by about as i mentioned and uh, the editors uh roman littlefield sent it off to reviewers and I was like, no, no, it's not finished. I just wanted to give it to you to give you an impression, right? <laughs> and they sent it off to reviewers anyway. One of the reviewers was Jill Anninger from Columbia, uh, a wonderful thinker and somebody I deeply admired and uh, that brought all sorts of anxiety for me. And a student of Edward Said, I was like, oh, my God, you know, he's a contemporary who's had conversations with Edward Said out in Columbia University and he's reading my book. I, you know, that's it, done. Um, Googling how to change my name and so forth. And, Right. So, and then one day, I don't know how this happened. Um, I, I said I got a notification because I'm signed up to Google Scholars or something like that. And it was a review of my book and it was from Jill and it was a glowing review. And I was like, what is going on? Right. So then all of a sudden, from that point onwards, I, I felt like people understood what I was trying to do and I felt like it was appreciated. And I was shocked. I'm not going to lie. I was absolutely shocked that I pulled it off. Then I started worrying about all other things, about whether or not um, they had read the right version. <laughs> it's like, what have I missed and so forth. But that, you know, like a lot of early researchers, especially those who have been raced or have these designs to push back against uh, mainstream society. And, you know, academia is a tough place to find your space in it, especially if you're dealing around critical race studies and issues like that and if you're a minority and a lot of us have developed imposter syndrome of some form or other and don't believe we belong and so uh over the years um up until awesome wrote a review and others in my own circles and community were grateful and you know it was so wonderful for me to receive emails and or twitter posts or otherwise by saying oh thank you for putting words what I was trying to say and the same kind of feeling that I got from Fanon I felt like I was repaying back that debt to other Muslims there were a few criticisms later on but I think I mean look I think every author will be defensive of some sort by saying a lot of the critics didn't understand what I was trying to say and (laughs) you know um, I feel in some cases that's valid but if I'm trying to give the best argument possible and apply the principle of charity I think their concerns about me um not being Islamic or grounded in the Islamic tradition enough is fair, but I never tried that. I mean, I'm very clear. I think it's in page three or something or other where I speak about my contradiction of trying to oppose Western and uh, epistemic racism through Western language. And it's an old uh, post-colonial argument. How do we uh, underline the King's language by using the King's language, right? So uh, that criticism I think is, is fair. Uh, you know, why using these old Greek analogies and, you know, stuck for a lot of these deities and so forth. But I, that criticism has been rare. And I think it's motivated partly because of my criticism of Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, but I, I don't want to uh, reduce all criticisms to, you know, the other side being um, 
petty like that. I, there, there are, uh, I, I think, legitimate claims to questions to come out of it, such as how does um, somebody who identifies uh, as Islamic opposing Western racism, if you will, and not relying on traditional uh, primary Islamic sources? I think that's an important question. You know, I and I, uh, I'm speaking about a space that I find myself in. It wasn't my project to do that, but I, I get that. And so I've reflected since then about what it may mean to read more closely, be more grounded in the Islamic tradition, and continue the project of speaking about the pressures to deal with the war and terror. Um, you know, uh, so the fourth mask, if there is one, is maybe the mask that speaks about masks as a way to not uh, connect to that tradition that. Um, you know, has been neglected. But uh, overall, um, I've been surprised. I've been uh, by the positive reaction that I've got. Um, and the, and it has brought me some um, comfort to know that I've helped um, some young Muslims uh, deal with uh, what they always knew was happening. And I, if I do nothing else in for a remainder of my career, wherever it may take me, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll be, I'm glad, uh, alhamdulillah, I've done that. And that for me was, um, you know, um, one of the main aims. The second aim is uh, my daughter recently mentioned, and she's about 10 now, and she's slowly speaking about racism in a way, and she has promised to use my book when she goes to high school and anybody's racist. <laughs> and I think what she means by use my book is to throw it at them. So I don't think <laughs> <laughs> she particularly means she's going to walk them through the readings. But yeah. Um, so uh, if my book can, book can be used as some type of projectile <laughs> against racists, all the more the better. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh you know, people that read this book and hopefully people that have heard your uh, conversations about it uh, here and elsewhere will, will want uh, to hear more from you, obviously. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, things you might uh, be working on or or projects that you have kind of? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, I, I think I'm on my way out of academia, I, I, but I've been saying that for five years, right? And I'm still here. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, but um, getting off social media was a big thing for me because I felt like I've hit a wall uh, in all of the things that I'm doing and um, not growing. Growth for me is somewhat important. And, you know, fighting racism, Islamophobia comes at a particular cost and uh, you kind of collapse into a particular language and uh, echo chamber. And uh, from a spiritual growth sort of perspective, it wasn't helping me. I for whatever reason, and I don't blame anybody for doing this, I became the critical race theory guy, right? And I became the guy in the Muslim community who had to advocate for, and I don't mind doing that. I've got no problem with talking about racism in both an ontological and political and important way um, to be part of a broader pedagogical, public pedagogical tradition of, of teaching one another about our experiences. I've got no problem with that, but I kind of feel like I've hit a wall. I kind of feel like the current political climate we're in, um, it's kind of cultural wars between social activists and, you know, uh, traditionalists is, is tiring and unnecessary. 
So I've moved away a little bit to kind of focus on another feature of what it is that I have always been um, interested in and I've studied uh, trying to complete uh, psychology in order to go down the counseling or therapy line uh, and think about what theory as therapy might look like. It was therapeutic to write my book. From what some people have told me, it's therapeutic to read it, um, just as it was for me to read Fanon. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm... no longer as committed and motivated to the what I think is the academic myth of entering the marketplace of ideas and having this contest about I, I'm more committed to thinking about the kind of, and I think there's a chapter in my book called The Psychic Register of Muslims. Uh, so it's a continuation of that project. What, what, it may, what does it mean to, to kind of spiritually grow at this time? What is, you know, an internal therapy may look like about dealing with racism and I'm trying to merge here my previous political theory and philosophy training with um, my new training in psychology. Now, how that will manifest in work, I'm writing a couple of books, but um, I'm reluctant to tell you what they are because they may never, ever come out, okay? <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to write a book about how racism works. I'm trying to write a book about rage um, because a lot of um, – to give you a very quick answer – I, I spoke in very, one of the early chapters of my book about this, this dormant Islamist inside of me, this kind of like, um, you know, I don't know if this will get me in trouble. I'm just going to say it and see how it goes. But um, <laughs> this kind of like Osama bin Laden type angry voice that I felt was, now I don't think it's authentically me, but there's something in there. There's, there's a rage in there, you know, about... Um, the way I see the violence is done towards um, people of color around the world, right? Um, and I kept that voice down because that's my job to make sure that I don't do not become, if you will, um, do not romanticize violence for the sake of it, right? Um, because I, I do believe in peace. I do believe in a type of uh, growth that is built on the best of principles that I find in my tradition, you know, to not harm, to not be excessive in that, in that fighting back. But I'm also interested from a purely academic perspective about the psychology of that voice that hides dormant within me. And I, I want to have a conversation with it, not because I, I, I want it to, to be me, but I want, you know, I've spent so much time repressing it that what would it say if I let it out? What, what, what argument would it win? What arguments would it not win? You know, rather than me continually saying, no, that's not who I am, that's not the Islam I identify with, let, let the bird out of the cage and let it sing its song however ugly it is. And I, I wanted to imagine me writing a conversation about my own rage, having a conversation with my rage, you know, without feeling the compulsion to wear a mask, let it be unmasked. Um, now, you know, life's got in the way and I, I hope that... I get to a stage and state where I fall back in love with um, producing books. But at the moment, um, you know, I'm, I'm exploring ideas and having internal conversations and trying to survive the current stage of where I'm at. Yeah. Well, um, those, those sound really interesting and I hope that uh, they, they come out some way, uh, not necessarily as books, but. Uh, well, yeah, I've got, I've, got <laughs> I've got contracts for them. I just, yeah. Hopefully we can continue to, to, to hear your voice uh, in, you know, we, I know you've written in the guardian and other public spaces. So um, mm. 
I, I appreciate that about your kind of uh, your you. voice as well. That you're not limiting it to the kind of academic domain. So, um, so good luck. I hope you. I hope those do kind of emerge in some productive way for you because they're they're productive for your readers. I think. Thank you. Yeah. Um. I mean, they they should come out, but um, I'm I'm going slower. Uh, and yeah, hopefully, God willing, that they will be uh, works that I finish. But. Thank you for the opportunity, and I appreciate uh, the kind words um, regards to my work. So um, I hope to be in one way or another um, around. I, but we'll see where, <laughs> where God has, what has planned for me. That was my conversation with Yasser Morsi about radical skin, moderate masks, de-radicalizing the Muslim, and racism in post-racial societies, published with Roman and Littlefield, in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, and we hope you'll check us out again. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.